This is Josh Israel, and welcome to the ACO Show, a podcast where we explore the new world of value-based healthcare, and specifically how one company is trying to transform the healthcare system from a world where medical providers benefit financially only from the volume of work that they do to a system where medical providers are paid for keeping patients healthy. This is Joe Schunkweiler. I'm also a physician by background, and I lead the adoption and training teams here at Allidade. Almost everyone agrees the healthcare system in the U.S. can be much better. It's even a stretch to say that such a crazy combination of unconnected healthcare parts is even a system. But moving from the idea of a system that makes more financial sense to one that serves patients better is all about the details. So that's what we're here to explore today. And I still remember not too many years ago when everybody thought it was really cool to have your own website, and today's version of that is to have your own podcast. So that's what we're doing here, and we hope you'll bear with us as we learn how to do this. Today you're going to hear our interview with Travis Broom. Travis is the policy guru here at Allidade, and along with Ahmed Haq, who's the Senior Vice President for Performance, we explore the concept of risk as it relates to decision-making in healthcare policy and value-based care, and more importantly, how it actually plays out on the ground. talking today to Travis Broom, who's the lead of policy and ACO administration at Allidade, and to Ahmed Hawk, who is the VP of Provider Networks for the Mid-Atlantic region. Allidade is a company that partners with independent physician practices on value-based care, and we're going to talk about value-based care and downside risk. It sounds pretty dry, but there's a lot at stake with this, so I think it'll be interesting. We know that the answer to what each of you does at Allidade is a little bit of everything, but why don't we start with each of your roles at the company? So. Travis, how about you? What does it mean to lead policy for ACOs? Policy at Allidade really boils down to this whole concept of finding a financial model for independent physician practices that supports and rewards their success in reducing cost of care and improving quality and efficiency of their practices. So it really boils down to, we do a lot of great population health work, we do a lot of great things for patients with 95% of the people at the company and a small fraction of us are focused on making sure that there's a way for all of those activities to be financially rewarded. That's great, Travis. Ahmed, that's that's quite an impressively long title that you have. Uh, Can you talk to us about uh, what you do at Allidade? Absolutely. So the first thing that I'm responsible for is our provider network and network growth. So we identify strong physician practices um, around the country and we form networks of, uh, of physicians and put them in accountable care organizations. Uh, the second is uh, overseeing our shared savings, so making sure that we're doing the right work as part of the ACO to improve quality of care and reduce expenditure and bring money back to our physicians. And third is Uh, responsibilities include our key partnerships so making sure that we're partnering with the right payers in the marketplace partnering with the right providers in the medical neighborhood including hospitals and specialists so Ahmed in the interest of full disclosure one of my favorite things um, about your role here is that whenever we talk about any new initiative which is often you always bring us back to the shared savings point Um, and so I'm, I'm happy to hear that that's consistent with how you view your role, because that's definitely how I've seen you uh, lead here at Allidade. 
Yeah, we'll be talking, I guess, a little bit about this uh, later on, uh, but it's important, you know, as we work with independent primary care practices, uh, and these folks are also small business owners. It's really important that we're putting uh, money, uh, uh, you know, it's important to put money up there and make sure that uh, the work that, that's being done and the type of high quality care that's being provided, our doctors are getting paid for it. Absolutely. Travis, so one thing that Josh and I have been asking um, everyone that we talk to around Alliday, but also as part of this podcast, is uh, to define value-based care. Because, you know, uh, I, I read a tweet off previously of uh, uh, Chrissy Farr from CNBC said the most disruptive thing we can do in healthcare is talk about these terms in, in approachable uh, settings and, and, and ways that the layman can understand. So how do you describe value-based care? Sure. So when I think about how healthcare is paid for in America, there's really two ways. One is fee-for-service. This is basically the idea of I'm going to provide a defined service to you, and that has a set price that comes back to me. And then there's the idea of value-based care, where rather than a set price, I'm going to look at the value that that services create and measure it in some way. In our world, in the ACO world, it's shared savings, right? Value is defined by our do total costs for a patient's healthcare. Are they less than we thought they would be? And the difference is value. Um, so it's the collection of the services to come together to collectively create value is value-based care. Fee-for-service is really just like a price list, right? I do this surgery, I provide that procedure, I get paid X dollars, regardless of what really happens next. So when we think about value, it's all about trying to tie the outcomes of everything everyone involved in healthcare does to payment, as opposed to just things to payment. When we think of it that way, it certainly that's a kind of healthcare I think most people would want to be a part of, both as a provider and a patient. But you know, the devil's in the details, and you know how how it gets implemented. And one of them that we spend a lot of time on and what we'll be talking about today is risk. So why don't we start with downside risk and one-sided risk? What are those things? Why do they matter? Sure. So the risk is basically this idea of am I going to be responsible or how much responsibility do I have for actually creating value, um, for actually coming, having costs come in lower than we expected? One-sided risk is basically saying we'll reward you if you reduce costs, but we, and we being usually the insurance company, right? Be it Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, be it Blue, be it United Healthcare, be it Medicare, be it Medicaid, will take the risk that cost goes higher. It basically simply says, you've told us you're going to try and reduce reduce costs. We believe that you're going to try. If you succeed. We will reward you, but if you don't succeed, it'll be just like the old days, and the insurance company takes all of the risk. Two-sided risk is exactly what it sounds like. Now, as an ACO, or as a group of physicians, or as a hospital network, I'm now going to say, now not only will I be rewarded if I succeed in my attempt to reduce costs, 
but I will also share in the risk that costs go up with the insuring company. So that is the real big difference and it's really probably the second most important decision an ACO as an organization would make. So the first one is coming together and making that initial commitment. A group of physicians coming in together and saying, these are our patients, I'm gonna be responsible for their cost and quality, whether I deliver it or not. That's the biggest one in the first one. But the second big decision they'll come together as an ACO to make is at what point are we ready? At what point is it time to say, we're gonna to go to two-sided risk and we're not only willing to make the attempt, but we're willing to essentially risk um, that we will succeed. So given that that is uh, such an important part of the process, and also we know that there are a lot of provider-led ACOs and we work very closely with many provider-led ACOs here, um, providers aren't known for their a desire to take on any kind of risk. So how do you recommend the decision makers in ACOs or accountable care organizations think about that risk decision? Yeah, so it's absolutely something that you have to put a lot of thought into. You have to be able to understand primarily your benchmark methodology. You know, how is that expected cost going to be set? You know, in the ACO world, we usually call them benchmarks. Um, in other worlds, they're called premiums. But at the end of the day, it's all about how much did we expect to cost, and things to cost. And you have to really understand how that's set. And then the three types of risk that really play into that. So as physicians and as people who provide healthcare services, we almost always think about medical risk is what we're used to thinking about, right? Is this idea of I have an uncontrolled diabetic, he could be controlled, and if I provide better healthcare services, he'll be controlled. That's kind of medical risk. There's also insurance risk, right? Many cancers are completely unpreventable. So am I gonna have a higher rate of cancer this year than I did last year? Accidents, you know, how many people got in car wrecks this year versus last year? This is what we call insurance risk. And finally, there's what we call third-party risk, or if you're talking about Medicare, it might be called regulatory risk. And this is basically the risk you're taking that someone else is gonna decide those expected costs. Someone else, the other party, be it Medicare, be it a blue plan, be it United Healthcare, be it Aetna, is gonna decide how that expected cost is. So you're putting some faith in them as well. So you wanna understand all three levels of risk, and then you want to know how those feed into and are accounted for in your benchmark. Most physicians, most healthcare providers, they're all about the medical risk, right? So their ideal benchmark is 100% medical risk, no insurance risk, no regulatory risk, right? That's not possible to do 100, 0, and 0. So you have to be able to understand what am I taking on? Is it 80, 20, Zero is it 50, 40, 10? Um, you know, understanding how those things feed into your benchmark um, gives you the understanding you need to be able to know what you're taking on. So once you know what you're taking on, the other thing is obviously matching it to your capabilities, either proven through past performance or through your belief in your ability to accomplish things in population health in more efficient, better healthcare services. Um, so once you know what to expect, match that up to what you think you can do, 
that's what goes into making that decision of whether it's time to go to risk. So if you know, if I remember correctly from my finance classes, uh, there's always with risk. You also have that reward element, right? So you take on more risk. It's uh, um, you can get more out of it. That's how it works in the investment world, let's say. So, talk to me just quickly through the other side of that. So you talked about the three parts of risk. What are the rewards on the other side? Sure. Uh, usually, the reward is pretty straightforward. Um, in a, in we'll just use Medicare as an example. Uh, today, they will offer fifty percent of the savings if you don't take any risk at all. So. 50% of the difference between expected cost and actual cost um, will go to the ACO. If you're willing to take on risk, they'll give the ACO 75% of the savings. So it is very much a classic risk-reward trade-off, just like you remember from your finance class, in that usually the way reward for taking on risk works is that more of the value, if you succeed in reducing costs, um, will be given to you as opposed to held back by the insurer, again, be they Medicare or private insurers. So Ahmed, as I've told you, you, you to me are the, the Johnny Appleseed of accountable care organizations. We, we won't see you around the office for a few days and then you come back and we have a whole bunch of new allotted accountable care organizations somewhere on the, the eastern seaboard. So you are there as these discussions are going on at the level of the ACO, at the level of the provider. I know for a provider, when, to think about taking on risk, they I would assume that some of them think, look, I've already taken on risk. Like I'm paying rent, I'm paying office staff, I pay for my malpractice up front. Like, isn't that enough risk? So what do you see going into these decisions for the providers and the ACOs? Sure, great question. Um, you know, value-based care has, has fundamentally changed the way healthcare is uh, delivered and, and also the way in which it's paid. Um, uh, the physicians that we work with, uh, they're becoming more accepting of, of outcome-based medicine, value-based care. And the fact that we work with family medicine, internal medicine doctors, Allidate's primary partners, um, there's philosophical alignment there between uh, their training and why they went into medicine and value-based care. Um, as, as I said, our, the physicians that are part of Allidate are also small business owners. And uh, it's hard rendering services, providing care today to get paid tomorrow. Um, and we're an interesting place in healthcare. Uh, and we are somewhere in between volume and value-based uh, payment. Uh, and, and it certainly makes for very interesting times. Um, I will say that uh, overall, the, the physicians are very excited about more payment for, for more risk. And as Travis said, uh, more reward for the risk that you take on. But there are certainly concerns over the logistics of that. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about these decisions at the market level and the, the provider level, um, but thinking about an ACO and how their contract structures work, um, does it matter how long they've been in business when they're starting to decide on whether to take on additional risk? It certainly matters how long they've really been focused in on population health and this idea of being accountable for total cost of care and quality. You know, under the current Medicare rules, how long you spend in one-sided risk and then you move to two-sided, it was very, very, very prescriptive. Um, Medicare recently came out with some new rules for the Medicare Shared Savings Program that they proposed um, middle of last month 
that really talk going to give ACOs a lot more flexibility. So they kind of create a minimum. You have to move at least this fast. Um, but there's also the opportunity to move a lot faster. So it really comes down to three factors, uh, kind of a new one I'll talk about, and then the two I mentioned before. The new one is, you know, population health, a lot of the stuff we do, care management, getting that diabetic in, getting them into a care management program, getting their diabetes, that stuff takes time. It's hard. It's hard. It takes time. You know, when the first, very first MSSP results came out, there were a lot of disappointed people and that the first year results weren't a lot better. And I said, well, I've just found a lot of people who are very new to population health, mm -hmm. right? Because it, it does take time. So you need to make sure you put in enough time to get to a place where you think your capabilities, you really have a high likelihood of success. You think you are really able to move the needle and to get those diabetics under control, to prevent readmissions, to do all of those things. And then once you think you're ready, then it's all about understanding your benchmark, understanding your program you're in and how the finances of your program work to make sure your readiness is actually gonna be reflected in the financial performance um, of the ACO. Um, and like I said, that's really the core of what I do here in policy at Allidate is really trying to make sure that all of the great things, our product team, our initiatives teams, our field teams and stuff, they're all creating more value so you have to know you're creating more value but you also have to understand how that value is measured and make sure those things match up in a way that works for you and your organization before you go to risk and a lot of that stuff takes time it takes time to do the to get ready to do all the good things build the capability on the population health side and then on the finance side it takes time to get data back you know you get some experience with your claims data and you get that experience and you build it up and that knowledge. Um, so any given organization, it could be one year, two years, other organizations maybe need three, four, five years, um, but it does take time and it does take a lot of self-reflection to know when it's right for you. I think that speaks to how many persuasive people there are at Alliday that you know, we could ask people to take on this risk and then wait a few years, it's, it's a lot. Um, so I'm at, we all work here at Alliday headquarters. We all care a lot about this work. It's a place where people really believe in the mission, believe in improving healthcare, and the success of the company and the success of our providers. But at the end of the day, we are working with OPM. We are working with other people's money, um, which is a lot easier to do than uh, you know, a provider really putting their own livelihood on the line when they maybe buy a building or hire a whole bunch of staff. So you know, what are those first conversations like when you ask a small business person, a, you know, a small primary care provider to, to take on risk, even even the word risk. Yeah, look, it's scary. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're, we're working with independent providers who, who provide good patient care and the payment they receive or the reimbursement they receive, that's their livelihood, right? They're paying for their children's college education with that money or uh, they're paying for braces for their, for their children. Uh, and they're keeping the lights on payroll yeah and and making payroll right mm -hmm. and the other people that are employed and uh, a good chunk of Allidate's ACOs and the markets in which we're operating are rural areas of the country where 
if a physician stops practicing medicine, there's not a whole lot of other options that exist uh, in those communities. So uh, it's an area that we have to uh, uh, track very carefully and, and, and think through uh, all of the implications before we, before we proceed. And, uh, you know, Allidate is here in so many ways to help through that transitionary period. Uh, very carefully and thoughtfully, and we provide the right tools and supports that allow uh, the practices to take on risk uh, and transition to risk over time and transition at a pace in which they're comfortable. So Ahmed, we we know this is hard and it's scary. Uh, I've seen trends where some ACOs, particularly in the hospital side, I want to stay in that one-sided risk that Travis was talking about, where you're only accountable if you, uh, you only can win and you have downside protection if you go over that cost benchmark. So um, is that uh, is that surprising to you? What do you think is going on there? I mean, um, they can't do that indefinitely, right? No, and, and what we've uh, learned from the uh, proposed rules uh, that CMS has put out is uh, CMS is no longer interested in keeping ACOs around just for the sake of, of keeping them around. Um, and CMS has really drawn the line in the sand and said we care more about quality and, and less about quantity when it comes to ACOs. Uh, and the literature has, has strongly shown that physician-led ACOs are twice as likely to achieve savings over hospital-led ACOs. Um, and because insurance uh, companies and CMS has not seen a return on investment in some of these ACOs, I think they'll be okay with letting them go. Um, you know, we feel strongly that while uh, this is uh, the way in which providers are going to be paid for the work that they're providing to patients, uh, and we want to make sure that our eye is on the prize, uh, around shared savings. It's also really important that we're doing the right thing in the communities and we're doing the right things for patients and focusing on quality. Uh, we have no interest in locking up practices, locking up physicians into ACOs uh, to protect our interests. Our interests are perfectly aligned with those of the providers and the patients. Yeah, that kind of gets back a little bit to the know who you are. You know, you, I mean, you alluded to the research recently that came up from CMS where we're talking about kind of low revenue physician only ACOs being far more successful. Uh, it was actually three times um, as successful as high revenue ACOs which tend to be hospital based ACOs. Just yesterday um, research out of Harvard was published in the New England Journal of Medicine showing a very similar thing that physician led ACOs are generating nearly all of the savings to Medicare in the program where hospital-led ACOs tend to balance, bound around the middle, bounce around the middle, if you will, sometimes saving, sometimes not saving, kind of canceling each other out. Um, so again, it really comes down to, you know, who am I, am I well positioned for success? You know, for all the physician ACOs, you know, everyone readily admits that the incentives are aligned better for mm -hmm. them, right? Like, you know, not only are they performing better, but you know, part of the reason they perform better is the incentives are aligned better for them. When they present a prevent a hospitalization, they get a shared savings check, and the revenue they use for payroll 
stays exactly the same. It actually goes up, right, when they're sharing sharing check. When a hospital prevents a hospitalization, their revenue goes down, right? Um, so it, it, I think physician ACOs are in a great position of the incentives align better for them. They have proven over the year, over the last few years, that their performance is top notch. They really are saving Medicare money. Um, the New England Journal study had three hundred and seventy million dollars back in twenty fifteen, and then even doing it against benchmark, which we don't think you know. Again, you got to know your benchmark. It's not really the counterfactual. Um, CMS's own actuaries, you know, pegged it at two hundred and seventy million dollars, you know, and more adjust from non-risk-taking ACOs that are led by physicians. Throw in the few risk-taking ACOs that are out there now, and last year they saved $313 million, again, against Benchmark, which means they probably saved even more than that when you think about, really think about what costs would have been different. So, you know, knowing who you are, knowing how your capabilities lined up are so important in being ready for risk. I mean, when we talk to our ACOs about going to risk, we give them all of the financial numbers and we try and convince them that savings are much, much more likely than losses and you get financial rewards and all of these trade-offs. None of that would convince them to go to risk if they didn't believe that what they were doing was making a difference. And I think that's what makes a lot of physician ACOs great, and certainly Allidate ACOs great, is these are a group of docs who believe they're making a difference. You know, we've we've long read about uh, the statistic where a third of healthcare spend in the U.S. is on wasteful spending, um, and one experience that I've had with Allidate over these last several years is actually being able to see it in action in in the markets in which we operate you know, getting claims level data and seeing what's going on at the patient level, it's uh, quite uh, astonishing to see the level of waste that we have in the healthcare system today. And to answer your question, Josh, uh, are physicians ready to take on risk? I think over time they're opening up more and more as they see the data, as they see how much waste there is in the system, and they understand it's a zero-sum game. Mm Right? It is a matter of shifting those dollars to where they belong and paying for keeping patients healthy and at home and not paying for having more heads in beds. You know, when, when we talk about it this way, and I may be sorry for speculating on anybody else's motives, but it's hard to think really what the hospital's idea was when they were founding these ACOs. You know, was it as dark as locking up providers and getting people referred to facility fee situations? or? Was there some play that, that they could have had that would have worked out? Because the, it seems like the revenue and the shared savings really just work against each other so distinctly. I was thinking the exact same thing, mm-hmm. given that most of my, my experience with ACOs has been through Allidate and the provider-led ACOs. But um, in talking to other folks in the space who came from very large hospital-based ACOs without naming names, um, I'd, I'd be curious to get your opinion on that, Travis or Ahmed. Yeah, I think it varies a lot more in the hospital space than it does in the physician space. 
it's really straightforward for a bunch of physicians to come together and say, these are my patients, I'm responsible for their total cost of care and their quality, and if I succeed, I know I will make more financial benefits. For a hospital, they're in the position of, if they succeed, they might make less money. And I think you can kind of see it in this recent research I talked about that just came out yesterday in the New England Journal of Medicine. If you look at the hospital cohorts, the only hospital cohort that actually saved significant amount of money, you know, all the error bars are on the good side, was the 2012. The people who started, as soon as the program was available, they're like, I'm signing up. This is for me. Call them like believer hospitals, right? So there certainly are believer hospitals out there who you know, just believe that this is how care should be delivered and do it. But it's not just not universal the way it is on the physician side. For every one of those, you also have another hospital who signed up just because, eh, like we're supposed to, the compliance isn't that hard, we'll sign up, and then they just didn't do anything. And then you have other hospitals who might be a little more Machiavellian about it, like you alluded to, Joe, of like, oh, we'll sign up because it helps us keep all of the patients in the system for fee-for-service and mm. helps us attract the doctors and keeps the doctors connected to us even if we don't buy their practices and things. So I think what you're seeing on the hospital side is just a lot more variability in both financial alignment and the reason they're doing it. Whereas I think on the physician side, they're all believers. They have different capabilities, they have different um, experiences, but for the most part, they're all believers in the work. And, and I agree with that. Um, I can speak from the marketplace uh, standpoint there are several hospitals that, that I know of that are trying to do the right thing. And uh, it's tough. It's, it's a tough place for hospitals because it, this new value-based care movement is really threatening the, the, the traditional ways in which hospitals operated. Uh, but we're seeing a new class of folks come in uh, in the hospital industry that are trying to change that wave. Um, but you know, recently, uh, what I see a lot more of is it's important for hospitals uh, that those independent practices in the community join their ACO only because they don't want those practices to join an Allidate ACO mm -hmm. because they are threatened by the Allidate model and the likes uh, of Allidate uh, because it hurts their bottom line. So it's more important to lock up those physicians into their ACO to protect their financial interests, not so much about uh, reducing total cost of care. So I have a question for you, Travis. Uh, if I could have you look into your policy crystal ball and speculate, um, given these numbers that are strong and what seems to be good, in, good interest from the agency heads responding to those numbers, how would you, or if you were running CMS, let's say, or HHS, how would you incentivize more physician-led ACOs? Right, so this is a, a great timing, right, for mm -hmm. this question, because it's literally a proposed rule out there right now. And, you know, one of the things they, they did in the proposal is to create more financial incentive for risk, they actually reduced the financial incentives when you're in one-sided risk, mm -hmm. all the way down to 25%. Um, from the existing 50% that we all, most of us know and love. Um, 
that makes it really hard just to get a return on your investment. Sure. You know, Josh mentioned at the beginning of our conversation of like, where we always tend to talk about the idea of like, I have to pay losses back to the insurer. There's tons of investment risk in being an ACO. You're gonna hire people. You're gonna do different things. You're gonna spend time. You're gonna buy data analytics. You know, you're gonna make investments. And at 25% shared savings rate, it's really hard to see how those investments would return. Because you basically have to save Medicare $4 to get one. Um, and not a lot of population health activities have a four to one return. Um, two to one, 50%, far more common. Um, so I really hope CMS will kind of look at um, the new entrants and basically say, no, okay, we're gonna back off on that, even if we, because we want to entice, we want people to get returns that actually cover your expenses. Like, if I succeed as an ACO and I get shared savings, that check should be big enough to basically make me feel like I got a return on my investment risk. Um, some of the other things you know, that CMS can do to make it more attractive to particularly low revenue ACOs, and low revenue by definition means not a lot of capital resources, um, there's something called the minimum shared savings rate, um, which is has a good policy purpose, right? It controls for the idea of like, costs change every year. If we do absolutely nothing different, costs will still change a little bit every year. And so this MSR of, three and a half percent, three percent, possibly as high as four percent, is supposed to say, well, I don't want to pay out um, savings just for chance. But it also creates this cliff effect, right? Like, I'm at 3.1 percent, I worked really hard, I fought against some headwinds, and I got to 3.1 percent, but my MSR is 3.2 percent, and now I get nothing. Um, so maybe ratcheting that back a little bit for the lower revenue ACS. Again, back to that they can get this return on their investment risk. Um, some of the other good things CMS is kind of proposing in there is, you know, we talked about insurance risk earlier, and this applies to both new and old ACOs alike. We'd like to get insurance risk as much as we can out of the benchmark. Um, if you want to take on full insurance risk, there's a perfect way for providers to do that today. It's called Medicare Advantage, right? Starting an MA plan. Um, if, so we're not starting an MA plan for a reason, and usually that reason is we want to focus on medical risk, not insurance risk. Um, so the biggest way to get insurance risk out is risk scores. Um, basically, a risk score is a score that's assigned to a patient that says, we expect, based on the health of this patient, spend the cost this much next year. Um, Right now, CMS has this kind of policy where they just assume nobody ever gets sicker once they're in an ACO, which would be great if it were true, um, but certainly not true. So allowing risk scores to both go up and down depending on changes in the population will get some of that insurance risk out. And CMS is proposing to do this a little bit, up 3% over five years, down 3% over five years. We think that corridor should be a little wider but again the idea is to get that kind of insurance risk out and really get healthcare providers focused on medical risk which is where they see themselves and it's what they can do the most about getting that diabetic under control getting someone who's at risk for falls the therapy they need so the fall doesn't happen getting your immunization rates up 
so that you prevent those things. Following up after hospitalizations to prevent readmissions. This is what we're all about, um, and this is what we want our benchmarks to be focused on. One thing that has surprised me in some of the discussions around, you know, Medicare puts in this many millions and gets this many millions back in mm -hmm. savings, and they don't actually seem to factor in all the private investment. You know, everyone in Allidate is being paid with private investment money, and we're using that money to try to improve the Medicare system and improve the Medicare population. It would almost seem like it's free money to Medicare that they don't really talk about or value, as, at least not that I read about. It is a, it is a little bit... Uh, a little bit that doesn't come up too much. Um, one of the reasons is ACOs make a lot of varied investment, right? You know, you ask me how much it starts to cost start an ACO, and I'm like, well, if you want to start one like I think you should start one, it's <laughs> a lot, th right? It's a lot, right? Like three quarters of a million dollars, a million and a half dollars for a 10,000 person ACO. Um, somebody else might start it for a heck of a lot less than that. Um, somebody might spend a heck of a lot more than that. But there is one number that came out of actually MedPAC, and if you're not familiar with MedPAC, it's a congressional advisory group that advises Congress on Med Medicare. And they put the cost of just being, just running an ACO, not even doing all the population health, but just doing your quality reporting, doing all, all the stuff, bare minimum, if you will, is $2 per, per person per month. So $24 a year. There are nearly 10 million Medicare beneficiaries in the Medicare Shared Savings Program. Um, and so you can do some simple math here. 10 million times 24, $240 million at an absolute minimum that pri private investment is going into the ACO program. It's probably much closer to a billion dollars. Um, and that investment is at risk. And you know, I think that acknowledging that investment is one of the things I hope that CMS will, you know, kind of bring everybody back up to 50% to make sure there's a return on that. Um, but that is kind of like the first thing ACOs risk. But that has a real sunk cost idea, right? You know, our economics class all tell us we should ignore our sunk cost, but know what it's really, really hard to do in the real world. Um, so that's why we do believe that there should be some downside risk eventually when providers are ready, when um, physicians are ready, when ACOs are ready, because that, we think, will motivate them to continue to improve, to really push each and every year um, and not get settled in on whatever their initial sunk costs got them. Ahmed, 89 ACOs started in 2015, and when they had the opportunity to take the highest level of risk, three chose to do that. Two of those three were from Allidaid. Why do you think that is? That's a great question, Joe. Um, you know, it, first of all, it begins with um, market selection and then leads to practice selection. Uh, here at Allidaid, we're constantly combing through the entire country looking for opportunities on, on our next ACO. And once we've made our market selection, uh, we get really comfortable with the physicians uh, in the marketplace and have a separate algorithm for uh, going after the best and the highest quality uh, doctors in the community. 
Uh, and that process is, uh, uh, is, is a lengthy one. Uh, and it also, it's a process that requires us to get comfortable with the practices and for the practices to get comfortable validating. And part of the selection process also includes engagement, the level of buy-in the physicians have, the level of engagement that they're having with the ACO. Uh, we start all of our ACOs uh, in a one-sided risk arrangement, and uh, we absolutely want to move all of our ACOs to a two-sided risk arrangement. Uh, but in order to succeed, uh, we, we need to, first of all, have engaged physicians and be tracking towards a, a positive performance. But I'd say, you know, what really helps Allidane and also what really helps the physicians transition to two-sided risk is the fact that we make that transition easy from Allidane. So we give upfront capital that's required to set up the ACOs, but also capital that will help offset any of the risk, the capital reserve requirements, as well as any repayment back uh, to CMS. Um, all of our ACOs have an independent and very sound governance structure made up of the practices. It is truly a physician-led ACO, and that allows them the decision-making uh, authority and also the opportunity to decide what they want to do in their ACO, as well as validate data-driven tools and technology and supports. And all of that married together uh, is what allows us to confidently move towards two-sided risk, ensuring that we continue to put checks into the pockets of our physicians. Ahmed, that's great. Ahmed, Travis, thanks so much for your time. I think this has been really informative um, with regards to not just taking two-sided risk, but everything that goes into the process here at Allidate. So thank you very much. Thanks, guys. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you.